Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's solve the question of whether people should invest in Japan and in companies in Asia. Joining us now is John Vail. Uh, John joins us. He is the global chief global strategist uh, of Nico Asset Management, helping to manage, I believe, over like $165 billion. John, thanks for being in the studio with us. My pleasure, Pim. Lisa? Uh, all right, so give us the, your assessment, because I was noting that in part of your report, you're saying that you're not really, you're underweighting equities, generally speaking, but you do like stocks in, in Japan and in, in several developed Asia markets. Tell us about it. Well, it's really quite a story about uh, Japan's uh, unique uh, corporate governance imp improvement. Most countries around the world have fairly good corporate governance, especially in the U.S. and to a lesser extent in, in Europe. But Japan is coming from a low level upward. So it's a structural increase in the improvement in their corporate governance. And that's increasing profit margins uh, quite dramatically. It's also improving uh, stock buybacks. They're also doing a great deal of st stock buybacks. And that's uh, along with BOJ buying, Bank of Japan buying, that's pushing the stock market index upward. Well, hold on a second. Back up. I'm looking at the Nikkei right now, um, down 8% on the year. Right. And, you know, this isn't because people are looking at companies and saying, well, we don't know about your corporate governance. This has been driven in, in part by people getting their money out of the country and trying to uh, uh, figure out, uh, you know, what's going on with the economy. I mean, what, at what point will technicals give way to fundamental analysis like the one that you're giving right now? Uh, yeah, I'm not big on technicals, to be honest. But all I can say about the stock market declining this year is because the yen's been very strong, and it has impacted corporate profit profits in Japan. But if you look at it in U.S. dollar terms, like a U.S. investor would, it's actually up on the year, about 2-3%, which is not far away from where the U.S. stock market is, up 5%. So for a U.S. investor, it's, it's not been a bad return at all for Japan this year. Well, I was I just break into because you know you talk about uh, changing corporate governance. This isn't being done apparently because they like to make this change in corporate governance. A lot of this has to do with activist shareholders that have been pushing managements and boards to change the way they do business. Is, correct. is that correct? And also the government, um, Abe, Prime Minister Abe, has made a, a huge effort in terms of pushing for improved corporate governance. So are there some companies that are more ripe for, let's say, outside pressure to have them change their governance programs so that they can then reward shareholders? Because I know in South Korea, for example, you got the situation right now where Elliott Management is going after Samsung. Yes. Um, in Japan, there's always been uh, a few um, very good corporate governance companies. Even 20, 30 years ago, there were some that were very good, but there were always a lot of bad eggs as well. And it's these bad eggs when they're shifting from uh, bad to good. That's when you can really make a great deal of money. So moving away from Japan, what other markets in Asia are you looking at? Well, we like Hong Kong a great deal. Wait, hold on a second. There was a story on the Bloomberg Terminal that was saying that Chinese money is flowing out of Hong Kong stocks, you know. 
Yes, um, Chinese money comes and goes, um, but we still like the fact that uh, China is growing quite firmly. It doesn't need all the speculative money coming in or out of China. It can actually enjoy foreign capital flows from many countries, and it's uh, yes, it, things are improving in China, and, that, and Hong Kong is a derivative basically on China. Almost all of its profits uh, come from uh, China or related to China, so it's doing quite well actually. How concerned are you by the weakening yuan? Well, um, it's basically tied to a basket of currencies now, and so when the dollar is strong versus the euro or the yen or the Brazilian real, then the uh, Chinese yuan will also depreciate versus the U.S. dollar. But it certainly is coming to a point now where. Uh, maybe some politicians are going to notice, or the U.S. Treasury is going to notice, because it's it's hit new lows recently. And Today, ch- hit a new record low. Did it? Yes. Well, uh, and it's making you know hundreds of billions of dollars of trade surpluses every year, right? So why is a country that's making so much in trade surplus losing uh, value of its currency? It just doesn't seem right. But it is based on a basket, and I I think it's following the basket reasonably closely. John, you said you were not a fan of technical analysis, so maybe you're a fan of fundamental analysis, which I guess you are, right? Because I was (laughs) just sort of I, I confess, trying to make head or tails of the Chinese, uh, a lot of uh, Chinese company balance sheets and income statements is beyond my uh, pay grade. But um, I do look at the Japanese companies, because just to go back there for a second. That's not, that's not above your pay grade. Well, I, it, it, at least I've been there. At least I, you know, it, but Fanuc, for example, I always think of as the robot making company. Um, Daniel Loeb. Very successful uh, with Fanuc and also Sony to get them to do uh, share buybacks. What what analysis do you do? And give us some names or some direction for how we should deploy money specifically in in Japan because they don't just work in Japan; they just base there. Well, we uh, have a fund that actually looks for these opportunities. They have a lot of cash on their books. I don't actually know the names. I probably shouldn't mention them either at this point. It's uh, run by a very successful portfolio manager we have in Japan. He's been doing it for I think two decades. And yes, there still are companies in Japan that can uh, do what Daniel Loeb wants to do in terms of returning a lot of a lot of their cash to shareholders, to reducing their uh, unprofitable subsidiaries, concentrating on profit as opposed to market share. All the good things that uh, we expect from companies here, but are still. Uh, to some companies in uh, in the learning stage in J- in Japan. So in Japan, can you remove the variable in your fundamental analysis of quantitative easing and what the Japanese central bank is doing and how they might extricate themselves from current policies that have uh, proved incredibly challenging, particularly to the financial sector. Well, uh, no, I don't think we can. <laughs> we can other than to say that the stock market probably would be lower um, if the Bank of Japan was not buying a, a, a lot of stocks or doing a lot of QE. I think that's pretty clear. But um, I would say that uh, the Bank of Japan is doing basically the right thing right now. It's in terms of uh, le- lessening the importance of the QE policy and moving towards basically a price fixing of the long bond. And it's a risky move, which could require unlimited amounts of intervention at some point. But it, in a way, it softens the blow of tapering because they don't need to really buy any more bonds. 
because they already own most of the 10-year bonds. They right. own like 75% of five to 10-year bonds and probably more of the longer durated. So they can effectively fix that price, I think, without much effort. We shall see John Vale, Chief Global Strategist at Nico Asset Management, which oversees $165 billion. Thank you so much. take a deeper look at the AT&T Time Warner deal as far as whether it really is all that likely that it will get done and what the regulatory hurdles are that uh, the bankers face at this point. Uh, we want to bring in Alex Sherman, Bloomberg M&A reporter, and Jerry Smith, Bloomberg media reporter, to talk about this deal. Alex, I want to start with you. I mean, what do you put the chances at that this deal is actually going to meet all the regular You're results? asking me this, Lisa. I didn't drink lemon water. I didn't exercise <laughs> this morning, and yet I'm still being grilled with questions here. All right, I'm going to do my best. You better. Um, you could just say no. Look, take a look at where the stock is trading right now. Right? I could say no. Uh, Time, the market believes this deal is in serious jeopardy. I mean, the Time Warner is trading well below the offer price of uh, $107.50 a share right now. That is an indication that there is a lot of concern regulators will nix this deal. Uh, and, and with some reason, Donald Trump has already come out and said he'll block the deal. Hillary Clinton uh, has said we need to look at deals like this with an increased level of scrutiny, maybe meaning that she plans on being even tougher than the Obama administration has been. And they've been pretty tough. I mean, they, the, the Comcast Time Warner Cable deal did not go through, even though those two companies don't directly compete against each other. Uh, the Comcast NBC deal of 2009, which is what AT&T is pointing to, that deal did go through, and that probably is the closest proxy for this deal of a distribution company buying a large content company. But the world has changed since 2009. Jerry Smith, changed since 2009? You think this is what, it, the, what Alex says makes sense? I mean, you can disagree a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Much. Not a lot. He's here with you. I think it's changed since last year. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say it's not. It, it's like the landscape to every six months. It's something that's big and different. Right. I mean, you can see what AT&T and Time Warner are. You know, the argument that they're laying out now is, is, as Alex said, and also they're talking about how there's so many new competitors that they face now. Um, you know, companies like Netflix and Amazon that weren't in the television business just a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, it's very similar. This deal is very similar to the Comcast NBC deal, um, that went through, but it was, it went through with some pretty tough conditions attached to it that in some ways has hampered, um, you know, Comcast and NBC's ability to do business. So, um, you know, analysts right now are kind of putting this at about a 50, 50 chance. Um, certainly the, the climate has changed. I mean, if you look at what happened with Comcast, Time Warner Cable, a lot of people thought that deal was a sure thing when it was first announced and uh, it was blocked. So, you know, I think it's, it's really, um, you know, it remains to be seen. So with a big deal like this, how much does even regardless of whether it even gets through, how much does a big agreement like this pressure smaller companies to join forces and to, you know, sort of uh, generate some new wave of consolidation just by virtue of the threat of such a behemoth? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there is a, a herd mentality when you see deals like this happening. Um, you know, I think a lot of media companies, especially smaller ones, are looking at AT&T and Time Warner and they're not really sure what they're up to, but thinking to themselves, you know, this, I need to get bigger. I mean, the immediate game right now is very much about size, how many subscribers you have, how many viewers you have. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a possibility that this just is sort of a domino effect and that there are, there's other media companies that want to get larger to, to compete. And we already sure. know there's one deal in the works, CBS and Viacom, which the boards are looking at merging right now. So Time Warner would have been an out, perhaps, if CBS didn't want to go through with the deal. Now that Time Warner is taken, in essence, I think it probably increases the likelihood that CBS and Viacom's boards decide okay, a merger is beneficial for both companies. Alex Sherman, tell us a little bit about the price and how do you believe they arrived at this price? And, I, and as you noted, uh, the shares of uh, Time Warner, they're trading about $87 a share. That's below the offer price. Well, so Fox came after Time Warner two years ago with an $85 per share offer, a hostile offer, you may remember. Right. And Time Warner nixed that one, said it was too low. So that was a floor? So that was a floor, exactly. And Time Warner, before we broke this story, Last week, Tom Warner was trading around, let's say, $78, $79 a share. Um, so about, you knew the offer— About 10% since the, since the deal was made public. Correct. So you knew the offer was going to have to be above $85 a share, and probably well above, because Fox indicated they were willing to go even higher than 85 That was just sort of their beginning offering price. Uh, and Time Warner was very resistant that that, that deal was not going to happen. So an offer price of above $100 was almost a sure thing. Uh, then I think it just became a process of doing their due diligence and coming up with $107.50 um, through the But we know, heard earlier that I think that was a 13 wasn't a, What kind of 13%. multiple are they getting? 13 times? Uh... Which is a little high if you look at the other comps. But again, that's fairly typical when these deals are announced that the comp is a little bit higher than the competition because you need to get the shareholders on board and you, and you want to put out a, a sort of a sweet premium. Jerry, I wanted to ask, with Time Warner, let's say this deal does fall apart. How how bad of a situation is Time Warner in? Uh, I don't think they're in a bad situation at all. I mean, they were, before this deal was announced, they were pretty widely considered one of the best positioned companies in the media industry. I mean, they have so many assets that the, um, you know, HBO, the Warner Brothers Studio, CNN, uh, were all having great years. So, I mean, they, they had the right collection of assets, they felt like. And certainly, you know, we know that um, Apple had at least sort of vaguely entertained the idea of talking to them at one point. Uh, Jeff Bukas this morning said that Apple wasn't really that serious. But, um, you know, if this deal were to fall apart, um, it's not hard to imagine that they that Time Warner could find another suitor at some point. I think part of that logic also is why this deal, let's be honest here, despite what the companies really say, there are no real synergies in this deal. There were no real synergies when <laughs> Comcast bought NBC. I'm uh, like, ver vertical integration, it's just, they don't really exist. Uh, an M&A professor textbook would say you don't do this deal. In fact, this deal actually is exactly what you're not supposed to do, which is it, it it's diversifying your company and providing a hedge against your core competency, which is really what, what if you took an M&A class in business school, they tell you those deals typically don't work. But that's it. This is not a new concept. And Actually, Comcast buying NBC did work for Comcast because they bought it at such a low point in the market in 2009 that they were purely buying a good asset on the cheap. So that deal is going to work. Now, is AT&T buying Time Warner on the cheap? Much harder sell, I think. 
so I think you know the obstacles for AT&T to really turn this into a good deal are a lot higher. But AT&T has a separate motivation for these deals. It's also why it buy, bought DirecTV at a very high price. It needs free cash flow to pump through its dividend. That's why a lot of people invest in AT&T. So these are free cash flowing monsters, these two companies, and that should work well for AT&T's overall strategy. Well, they're going to need that cash flow because they're going to be taking on a lot of debt if they actually get the deal done. I want to thank you very much, uh, Alex Sherman from Bloomberg News. Our thanks also to Jerry Smith of Bloomberg News. Now let's turn our attention to imagining what's going on in Britain. We've got Mark Gilbert, a Bloomberg View columnist, joining us from London. Uh, Mark Gilbert, uh, the pound, the British pound has fallen by nearly a fifth against the U.S. dollar uh, since that uh, June 23rd vote to leave the European Union. It also uh, triggered a rise in uh, prices paid by businesses for their raw materials. I think that was like an 8% rise in August and the rise in cost. They came down just a little bit to about 7%. But does Britain have an inflation problem? What's going on with with the cost of of having voted to exit the European Union? Oh, boy, oh, boy, we have an inflation problem coming down the hill, that's for sure. Um, Microsoft has just announced that if you use its business software on a license in the UK, you're going to see a price rise of about a fifth as a result of the pound's drop against the dollar. If you look at any of the market interpretations of future inflation, like the swaps market, it's looking like it goes on on a hockey stick. It goes up and up and up and up. So that in turn is going to mean the Bank of England is going to struggle to cut interest rates. It means that one of the side effects of a weak currency, which is a rise in inflation expectations, is being seen rather more quickly than what might be seen as the good side, which would be a potential rise in exports. Mark, you know, at a certain point, you have to wonder how much people's view of Brexit in the rearview mirror is being colored by uh, some of the lobbying that's going on. Um, I know that the British Banking Association, for example, is saying that uh, by the end of this year, banks in the UK will start pulling people out of uh, London and and relocating them elsewhere as a result of the Brexit vote. Uh, This is a huge concern. I mean, this is 66 billion pounds of of uh, potential taxes uh, from the financial services that are at stake here. I mean, how much is this just uh, gimmickry? How much is this just trying to color people's views? And how much is actually economic risk? Well, I I know Anthony Brown at the British Bankers Association. He's, He's a serious chap, but it is his job to lobby on behalf of his industry. And the key quote is he says they've got their hands poised quivering over the relocate button. Now, that might be true, but hey... We all recognise moving staff overseas is kind of difficult. We've got story after story showing how office space in places like Paris and Luxembourg and Frankfurt is very hard to come by. What what Anthony's really looking for, I think, is to push the government into giving some tax concessions to the UK banking industry to make it more attractive, particularly for foreign banks to keep their business here. And he's also putting the pressure on the government that this issue of passporting, i.e. the right of firms based in the city of London to sell services into the EU region once we've left the European Union. He wants to make the pressure a bit harder on Prime Minister Theresa May to try and ensure that there's some continuity of those passporting rights, which, frankly, at the moment, the government seems to deprioritise over its ability to curb immigration. 
That said, if you're a big foreign bank and you're based in London and you're doing your five-year plans or your 10-year plans, being outside of the EU does make, the, does make London just a less attractive place than it was previously. So this isn't all smoke, but there might not be a full raging fire either. Mark Gilbert, what about the cost of fuel and energy? Well, we're entirely dependent upon what happens to the oil price there, but we have a much higher tax on fuel in the UK than, than for instance, you guys have um, in the United so States. So what is a liter of a liter of petrol, as you would say? What, what does a liter of petrol uh, cost? Because I guess uh, four, about four liters to the gallon. Uh, no idea, because I don't drive, because I live in London. <laughs> and very few people in London actually drive, because there's nowhere to park and nowhere to drive to, frankly. You know, your column today where you were talking about uh, the fact that uh, Brits are starting to count the cost of Brexit, you said that a poll conducted earlier this month by Ipsos shows almost half of voters reckon they'll be personally worse off after Brexit, and that's up from less than a third before the vote. What is it so far that's changed their view, do you think? Well, the inflation expectations is a big part of it. You know, the day after the vote, Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor, basically came out on television and said, whatever it takes, we will do. We've cut interest rates. You're going to have cheaper mortgages. Uh, those sunlit uplands that, 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 that those in favour of leaving the EU were talking about, we're sceptical that's going to happen, but hey, your central bank is here to help. Well, if inflation does what the market prices suggest inflation is going to do, then Carney's hands are tied. He's not going to be able to cut interest rates. You're not going to have that cheaper mortgage. And, we, you know, big international companies, we have a, a, a car factory up in a place called Sunderland run by Nissan, and they make their Qashqai SUV there, their, their most popular 4 by 4 by a long way, 6,700 jobs at that factory. And the head of Nissan says, you know what, when we do the next version of the Qashqai, we might just not be doing that in Sunderland. So those 6,700 direct jobs in the factory might well be at risk. And you haven't had a lot of companies so far saying, listen, we're cancelling this, we're pulling out of that. But there's definitely a feeling that investment is on hold, and that is increasing people's nervousness about what their own jobs' futures are, and also about their personal prosperity going forward. Bloomberg View columnist Mark Gilbert on Brexit and the pessimism that it's ensued. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.